Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning for the umpteenth time, the beginning of episode 23 of a thousand tiny steps. So as I begin this recording, I'm no longer in a nice tank top sitting in a Florida hotel room. I'm in my office, which is at the front end of my house. And I have a lot of windows to look out of and it's 16 degrees and we had a ton of snow yesterday. So it's a beautiful idyllic winter view, but I would prefer to be looking out at a swimming pool I'm not swimming in in Florida. If you're just hearing this one for the first time, I'm in season three of the podcast and I'm talking now. I call this season the bookends of grief because it's between my job loss and the loss of Molly. And that's a five and a half years almost period of my life where I process a lot of things after the loss of my teaching job in Concord, in the Concord School District. So I finished up my last episode talking about CrossFit. So before I get into that, because that's sort of where this one will start, a couple of things are relevant to the, the day that I'm recording this. So today is Sunday, January 30th, and I started this podcast recording on Friday. I actually, it was a completely different effort. I was in the middle of recording and talking along, and I had this dinky little computer because my good computer died during the pandemic beginning when everything was closed. I just quickly had to go to Best Buy and order a little quick one. So I ran out of space. I just stopped. There was no more room for me to continue the podcast. So, you know, I should be plugged into the hard drive I have over there. I have the cloud so I could store everything in the cloud. I've not adapted all this stuff yet. So long story short, I stopped. And so that was Friday afternoon. And Friday the 28th was the 36th anniversary of Krista McAuliffe's death. So that's a pretty important day for me, being a Concord resident and a school teacher and a Concord High School graduate and the older sibling of two that were at Concord High the day that this happened. You know, it just hits hard. I spent many years teaching in the district with Clint Cogswell, who was the principal of Kimball School at the time. And he, he brought, you know, Krista's son's third grade class down there. That's a day that brings back a lot of memories for a lot of people. And for a trauma-based person who lives a lot of the time in fear, triggers are triggers no matter what. And so January 28th is always tricky for me. It brings me back to college when I found out about it. And then I think back to all those memories. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, it's just an anniversary that makes you stop and think. Along with that, this weekend is the weekend where Concord Recreation puts on the Black Ice Pond Hockey Tournament. Actually, I think it's privately sponsored. But I live on top of White's Park and I grew up on the bottom of White's Park. It's one mile around. It's a beautiful park right in the middle of Concord. And there's a pond. And when I grew up, it was day after day. I, I feel like I skated every day on that pond. Winters just seemed longer and colder back then. I don't know. But I have a million memories of ice skating and sliding on the big hill at White's Park. The first Black Ice Pond Hockey Tournament was in January of 2011, when it became a really big event with a bonfire and sponsors and food and all of that sort of thing. So I had been out of my classroom since November 1st, but not officially resigned from the district and done until mid-January. So I was out running, trying to be okay in another all alone by myself, nobody talks to me anymore kind of day. 
really, really just struggling to be okay. And I went running. And I've mentioned before that I had to eventually not run so much because it just made me cry. I'd turn around and run back home. It became a really stressful component of what I was trying to look at as a recovery. In one of my runs, I, I ran a laps around White's Park because it's right here. I'm looking at it out my window. And so one mile around, I could, if I was starting to fall apart, I could just finish that lap and go inside and not run anymore. And I saw them starting the pond hockey preparation. So I ran into the park and there was this guy, Kite. So Kite is a good friend of mine. I've known him since high school. He graduated a couple of years ahead of me, but he was the groundskeeper. He was in charge of Memorial Field forever. So if anything went wrong or right or whatever, Kite was the person that was in charge. He did everything through him. He's retired now and he's married to Melody, who's a wonderful girl, also a girl. She's a woman, also from my high school graduating class. So at any rate, I'm standing there with Kite and we're looking at, he's building the bonfire and we talk about my job loss and how horrible it was. And he was right on my side and really, really angry at the very corrupt administration that existed at the time. And the backstory piece, which is the tricky part to share, he just, he just shook his head. And his advice to me at the time, you know, was, you know, people suck mostly, <laughs> but that I was, you know, too nice to people. Stop being so helpful. That's advice I should have heeded 11 years ago, but I didn't. So anyway, every year the pond hockey tournament comes. So what does the pond hockey tournament do for me? First, it triggers my job loss. That's the biggest first trigger. Second, it brings me back to my childhood. I spent so many winter days skating at the park. And many of those winter days were stressful winter days where I was missing my mother or feeling unsafe. And I just remember when I was having those feelings, getting out of the house and busy, not just sitting around and ruminating was important for me. And as I'm saying those words, I'm actually just realizing that when I was recovering, dealing with the trauma of Molly's death, I had a hard time sitting in the house. I'd wake up and go out on the porch or sit in the lawn, getting out of the house. Okay, there's a connection for Barb. At any rate, the Pond Hockey Tournament brings up those memories. And there are always tons of people from my childhood there. It's sponsored by, you know, hockey players. My brother played hockey. I was a hockey kid growing up, you know, tournaments on the weekends. And it was just a big part of my reality. On my little end of Essex Street, Tony, Ricky, and Jack all played hockey. You know, David behind us played hockey. You know, John down the street played hockey. And everybody played hockey. So they all come back and form teams. And, and so it's a big reunion of sorts, which is wonderful but also can be triggering when there's negative, negative experiences attached to your memories. That's the second trigger, the childhood. The third is Molly and Gracie because following years, 2012, 13, 14, we would bundle up in warm clothes and go down and watch the ice hockey at night and we'd watch the fireworks and we'd stand by the bonfire. And it became just a big sort of regular part of our winter routine. And when Molly died, the first pond hockey tournament was really hard for me because my friend Tony, who would park at my house and he'd bring his two kids and I'd bring my two kids and down we'd go and watch the fireworks and take pictures and such. They were still there. And Gracie was now, you know, in high school and didn't really want to go down and watch anymore. And it just reminded us so much that first year that Molly was missing. So here I am recording a podcast season that sort of starts in 2011 in January. And it's the Pond Hockey Tournament this weekend. Friday was all the little kids playing and then the fireworks Friday night and the bonfire and all this. We have COVID, by the way. I'm recording this podcast sick with COVID. I'm in day, day six right now. So four more days. It's been, you know, tricky to navigate. So I'm listening, lying in bed with Jack and listening to the fireworks. Maybe if I'd been well, we might have gone down, but I doubt it. And trying to be okay with it. They didn't last that long. They didn't wake him up, which is nice. They're right across the street from my house. 
and navigating through. We had a big blizzard yesterday in Concord. I think the hockey players still played. It really wasn't that bad for the most of the day. They could play easily. It was windy and such at night. And I believe they're finishing up today. I don't know. I haven't gone down. There are not 9,000 cars parked on my street as I look out the window. So I think perhaps it's over. So why am I rambling on about the pond hockey tournament? It's just an example of things that can send somebody with trauma into a tailspin that make no sense to the people not involved because they don't always know the connections. The beginning of 2011 and the beginning of my new life, not as a school teacher in Concord anymore, really was fraught with a lot of angst, which started with this pond hockey tournament, tournament experience that I had with Kite. Here I am now, 2022, with a new baby and a million other things going on and looking back to reflect. So I talked in the last episode about that first year. Another thing that I did that first year, so I have two things I'll talk about now that really helped me grab onto my trauma and sort of hold it and make it my own as best I could. I ran for school board. So in Concord, we have an autonomous school board, which means we're elected and we make the decisions and we vote. There isn't a public vote on every decision. Most towns, their school boards will present something and then the public comes in and votes. You know, you have voting day and people go and vote. So school boards can work for months on something and it can be voted down by the public and then you have to start over. Our school board is controlled by the legislature. I don't really understand, quite honestly, but what I do know is the nine of us have a lot of freedom to make decisions. And part of my trying to keep my job was I wanted a hearing in front of the school board and I was bullied out of it by an attorney, my attorney, who just said, they'll, they'll fire you, which now that I've been on the school board, they very well might've fired me. I see, I saw some pretty shady inside maneuverings in my early years that make me shake my head and think maybe I did the right thing by just resigning. My friend Tony actually talked me into running for school board and I did. And I, I won easily. Actually, there's only two of us for two seats, but tons of people came and voted anyway. So as I went into 2012, I was a school board member. The two months leading up to my first school board meeting, of course, I had joined CrossFit. My joining CrossFit is a lot more than me utilizing my body in a good way to feel better about myself. That really started with running, becoming a runner. And I'll talk about that in a different episode. When I started the fall of 2012, I had a, a school board campaign that was nerve wracking, but gave me some purpose and focus. I had a job at Flips, which was a godsend because it gave me some place to go. And I had just been hired at VLAC since I was starting to learn the ropes of the online process. But my income had essentially stopped. I had saved as much money as possible and a few months to live on. But I will say there were times in those first couple of years where like, I have no jewelry. I sold everything. I know Kenny was furious with me for so much of what I sold, but we had no money. And gold and silver were super, super worthwhile at that time. Those were desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. I sold a lot of beautiful pieces of jewelry. The fall, I'm marching through September and October. I'm trying so hard to be okay. The school has started. It's my first time not starting a school year, really, since I was a little girl. Think about it. I went to kindergarten through 12th grade. Then I had five years of college. And then I had, I had that next one year in between grad school and my teaching where I didn't teach. I ran for Nike and I was a waitress and that sort of thing. And then in 1987, all the way to 2000. 10, I started the school year. And then 2011, I didn't. It was heart-wrenching and really, really difficult for me. And I really didn't handle it well in terms of how I felt inside emotionally. I was trying to put on a happy face for Gracie and Molly. They really, really had a hard time watching me be so sad. When they started school, they were third and fifth grade. They were both together, actually, in the, in the Rumford School Building. They got to be in the same school building together. So that was actually kind of nice. They could ride a bus and it was all these, it was just a fun year for them. And I tried to keep it as uplifting as possible. Having said that, our neighborhood was really falling apart and life as I knew it was just decimated. Robin, 
who owns flips offered me this job. And, you know, gym owners are going through employees and staff all the time because it can be a very temporary job. Some of the, the entry-level jobs are very temporary and people get better at things and they move on. They open their own gyms or they, they do this or that. I was there with her that morning and we were working together and all. And then Sky came in and Sky was in college. She's a runner of mine. She was Sky Butman then. She has a married name now, which I can't remember. I was a huge support for her and we maintained a lot of contact. And when I lost my job, she was a huge support for me. So she brought me coffee and she came to Flips with Coffee and she came in and she met Robin and Robin actually said, do you need a job? And so Sky started working at Flips as well, which was wonderful. Now I was with sort of two favorite people on opposite ends of my life a little bit. Sky was active in CrossFit at the time and she's the one that said to Robin, hey, you guys should do CrossFit. And I had no interest at the time. I was barely holding it together. I was running. I thought running was plenty. And so I said no. And every Wednesday, Robin went Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but Wednesday is a day that I worked with her and she would leave a little early and I would close up and then go home and do my thing or whatever. I started noticing this unbelievable change in Robin's physique. Net got thinner. It was amazing. Her posture was better, everything. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, what? What is on? Are you on a diet? And she goes, no, it's just the CrossFit. I thought, okay, I need to check this out. So it was November. It was November 16th, which is a Wednesday. So I went with Robin. Well, I closed up and went. She'd already started. So I just sat on a stack of tires in this little one-room gym next to a saw shop and behind an auto parts and a rental. I sat there and watched and it was phenomenal what I was watching. I don't remember the workout they were doing, but there was weightlifting, there was chatting. The coach, John Farwell, seemed affable and funny. And, and I thought, okay, this is something I just need to try. So I pulled out my debit card and I just, he was sitting behind this desk and I said, here, I want to join. And he just sort of looked at me and he said, well, you have to take this on-ramp. And, you, and I just said, well, I can do all this. I'm a division one track athlete. I don't need, I don't need to be taught how to work out. I was so full of myself. So he just looked at me. He's like, fine, we'll give it a try. So I think, you know, they were just starting out. So you're not going to turn down money. And so the next day I went, Thursday, November 17th, 2011. So I went and had my first CrossFit workout and I have it actually in a notebook. I should have been more prepared as always what the workout was, but it wasn't a long workout. It was actually a pretty short workout. And I was a bit befuddled. It was over, you know, we did a warm up and a little bit of lifting and I was brand new at lifting. And I think the lifting we did was hang cleans. And so we went through learning how to hang clean. And then there was a workout. I did the workout and it was a really quick one. It was like a 12 minute workout. So when I was done, maybe 40 minutes of the class had been used up. That was it. And I said, okay, now what? He goes, that's it. I'm like, that's it. People say CrossFit is hard, cocky me. So I went home. Now I ran there and I ran home. And that's what I did in the beginning. I would run to CrossFit and run home. The following Saturday, which was the 19th, I went and it was a Saturday morning. And often on Saturday mornings, you get big, long partner workouts or named workouts or hero workouts. So we did a workout called Griff, which is running, primarily running. You run an 800 and then you run a 400 meter backwards. And then you run an 800, you do it twice. So we just did it around the building. So two laps around the building, no big deal. I ran my ass off. Then you have to run backwards for a 400. So when you take your first steps to run the second 800, your legs don't work at all. So I did that workout. And then of course I ran home. So about a week into CrossFit, it's like the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I can't move. My stomach hurts and my legs hurt. Like I am in utter agony over these like six CrossFit workouts I'd taken part in up to that time. I had to slither off the couch. So I went through and I talked about this at the, in my other podcast. After six weeks, after the rest of November and all of December and all of the holiday eating and drinking and cavorting, January came and I remember going back to a track meet in January and a coach from Kennett High School came up and asked if I, Barbara, are you okay? Are you sick? No, why? Well, you look so different. She hadn't seen me since the first track meet, which was when I was only maybe three weeks into the CrossFit. 
hadn't lost all the weight yet. So it was a profound physical transformation for me. But more than that, it was a profound emotional transformation for me. I had a community of people that just accepted me for me. Most of these people didn't know me before the job loss. Some of them didn't even know I was a teacher. It's how I feel now when I meet people that didn't know me before Molly died. They just accept this Barb as Barb. They're not waiting for some other Barb, some other version that used to exist to show back up. They get it. I'm never going to show up. This is it. This is who you have now. I really, really fell in love with CrossFit. So I quickly went from a three-day-a-week membership to a five-day-a-week. I wrote articles about it. It became a daily part of my life. And I talked about it all the time, which, of course, is what people do. For those of you that don't know, and one of the things that also attracted me to CrossFit is the unbelievable philosophy behind it. So I took a picture just so I would remember. The founder of CrossFit, Greg Glassman, founded this amazing fitness program. And it actually just is very, very basic. If you join a CrossFit gym and take CrossFit classes, you realize, okay, I'm not doing anything different than a lot of people are doing. But the motivation behind it and the energy behind it. So, you know, there can be 50 amazing running coaches. And there are. There are world-class athletes and mediocre athletes and athletes who try their hardest all over the world that have great coaches. Some coaches add another element to their coaching that makes it even better. And in my mind, that's what CrossFit does. And it's that unseen piece. It's the motivation behind the workout. Why are you doing this? And what will you get from it? And how can this help? So here's what it says. So world-class fitness in 1,000 words. Eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, a little starch, and no sugar. Keep intake levels that will support exercise, but not body fat. Practice and train major lifts, deadlift, clean, squat, presses, clean and jerk, and snatch. Similarly, master the basics of gymnastics, pull-ups, dips, rope climbs, push-ups, sit-ups, presses to handstands, pirouettes, flips, splits, and holds, bike, run, swim, row, etc. hard and fast. Five or six days per week, mix these elements in as many combinations and patterns as creativity will allow. Routine is the enemy. Keep workouts short and intense. Regularly learn and play new sports. So for someone who has just lost a job, has no sense of self anymore, lost all that agency I talked about before that I have a hard time with anyway, this method and this philosophy was profound. In most CrossFit gyms, and mine was no different, there were posters on the wall that name the hero workouts, the named workouts, the girls that have these philosophies up there. There's a very, very large military presence and first responder presence, firefighters, police officers, paramedics. That's a huge piece of the CrossFit community. And at first I thought, well, they all need to be in shape for their job, but it's more than that. All of those communities have an incredible brotherhood. And I use the word brotherhood because in English, that's what it is, but it's also sisterhood, siblinghood, let's call it that, where, you know, it's all for one and one for all. Everyone really, really, truly supports one another. And I loved that. As a coach, one of my biggest talks as a coach when I had my girls cross country team together at Concord High School and then again at Bow High School was we put our uniforms on and in Concord, it was just a big letter C. It said Concord in some years, but, and at Bow, the word Bow. And I would say, everyone look at your shirt. You know, what does your shirt say? What's on your shirt? What does your shirt say? And I'd ask a random girls in the group and they would say the letter C or Bow or Concord or whatever. And I would say, I don't give anyone a shirt that's better than another shirt. All of those shirts are the same. They say the same thing. When you put them on, you are one. You are a unit. You are together. So when you're not wearing the shirts, when you're in the hallway and you see your teammate sitting alone at lunch or alone in the hall or locker or being picked on by somebody or whatever, you go over and you say hi. You pull that person into your group. You invite someone to eat lunch with you. You're a team and you have to be a team on and off the field. I didn't say field. I just said cross-country course or track. But CrossFit has that. You walk in and you're immediately one of a group and no one is better than the other. And that was unbelievably important for me. 
So the year 2012 was a transformative year for me because I became immersed in CrossFit and immersed in Robin. I increased my hours at flips. So my whole life now was CrossFit and flips. In the midst of that was my struggling continuation with Roy and my falling apart situation at home. And all of that was easily sort of forgotten about in my hectic, frantic workout, 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 coach, 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 work, work, work. I was timing road races and officiating track meets. It was seven days a week of staying as busy as I could. And then Molly and Gracie's dance routines, which of course, anyone that's a dance mom with competitive dancers knows swallows you whole. So I had done a very, very good job of washing my wounds, you know, and my fears with busyness and movement. And it was unbelievably helpful. Was it good in, in terms of dealing with what was going on in my life, my struggling, falling apart marriage, this relationship I couldn't wrap my head around or commit to with Roy any more than I had already, and trying to maintain this fake little happy life for my kids. It, it was a very, very unhealthy situation, one that was truly driven by panic and fear all the time. And then there was school board. And let me tell you, I have said again and again, being on a school board is like getting a master's degree in business, finance community relations, teaching if you're not a teacher, wellness and health, hierarchy and marketing. You learn everything. You know, I'm still on the school board now. I'm entering my fourth term, which means when I finish this term, I will have 12 years on the board. I had a one-year break where I didn't get reelected to my seat. That was nice. In that year, 2012, I had some incredible growth. I was continuing to tap dance. That went well. Getting better at the job loss and getting more students in VLAX. So I was actually pulling together a fairly consistent wage, not a ton of money, and we still had no insurance. And there was a time that we actually had food stamps as well, an EBT card for food. Our income was terribly low. Kenny's business was falling apart at that time. He owned a vending company. So two things sort of played into it. One was the growing home video game industry was taking away people's desire to go to a game room. When you wanted to play video games in my generation, you had to go to Fun Spot or an arcade. If you were in a hotel, the first thing you did was go to the game room. Well, now you can be in a hotel and just plug your console into the TV in your hotel room and play really amazing high-tech. The game part, which had been some pretty easy cash for a long time, was ending. And then vending machines as well. That whole industry was changing, and Kenny didn't have sort of the backing behind him or a solid enough company to really move forward in that regard. And so it was just sort of slowly ebbing away. And as Kenny is wont to do, he, in some ways, is a lot like me. He just wants things to appear okay. And so... He'll, it's okay, everything's fine, and just hope it's fine. And lots and lots of things were just sort of deteriorating in spite of his best efforts to make sure they were okay. So I didn't know any of this at the time, although I could tell by the stress in his, in his mind that things were really, really tanking and that things couldn't be good. So that was 2012. And really my life went along that way for 2013 and 2014. It was this constant back and forth of me really, really using, immersing myself in CrossFit to deal with the avoidance of what really needed to be fixed. I know, is this behavior fair to anybody? No, oh, hell no, not at all. And I would never, ever say that it is fair. Does it allow people to criticize and judge me? Well, no, nobody should criticize or judge anybody. It doesn't mean they don't, and I have plenty that do. But when you look at the people in my life, my relationships at the time, Kenny and I actually divorced during this time. Some of his financial problems ended up almost costing us our house, and the IRS was involved. It was ugly and scary. And I think Kenny was probably the most scared of all. Took a lot of navigating. So being divorced made sense because it saved our home because it was in my name. So not to divulge all this personal information, but, you know, there were pretty scary times in being separated and divorced legally. His things were his and mine were mine. And the things that were mine benefited the kids. And so 
we wouldn't lose everything in a major fiasco or a bankruptcy or something like that. We got so far behind at one point, I opened the newspaper and there's a picture of our house and it's going to be auctioned off in a week. I got on Facebook and offered to sell my car. I, I was a mess. And I had a good, good friend that fronted me the money to make that payment. And I immediately began trying to pay those people back. You know, I had a couple of other people that chipped in as well. You know, it takes a village sometimes, selling jewelry, all of the things I did to try to keep my life together. There's a movie called Homeless to Harvard, and it's about a family in New York, two daughters, a mother and a father, and the parents are both drug addicts. And the mother ends up dying of AIDS, and then later on the father as well. And these two girls sort of raise themselves, and they have an abusive set of grandparents, and they get molested by the grandfather. And what are you willing to put up with to not have to sleep in the street? And the main, the protagonist ends up being homeless, and she ends up as a homeless girl going to high school and getting accepted to Harvard. What I resonate with in that movie, and you know, it affected me at the time, and sometimes I think the universe is preparing you for what's coming, but all she did was try, 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 try to keep her family together. She scrambled and scrambled and scrambled. She wanted to stay in the apartment. This little 11, 12-year-old girl is giving her mother money, and then her mother goes and buys drugs. But she thinks if she keep her happy, then her mother will stay, and everything will be the same. And it was this futile scrambling to keep things the same, to not let things fall apart. And that's me when I look back at, you know, 2011, 12, 13, and 14, that's a four-year period. I just, I couldn't fathom not having a connection to Roy because he was so connected to my job loss and so connected to bits and pieces of my reality that were happy. He was just this unbelievably necessary escape at the time. Admitting that is huge. I mean, it's nothing that people don't know. Everybody knew about my on again, off again with Roy. And I look back on the survival mechanism it was and how much I needed him. And we spent days and days and weeks and weeks not seeing each other. You know, I know that he must have been going through his own stuff. I only know what we shared, what he shared with me and what I shared with him. Those were tricky times. But, but the biggest piece of all those years was CrossFit and my using my body to make myself feel better, having therapy as well. So during that time, I actually had a talk therapist. I started seeing her again. Shortly after, probably before my job loss, well before my job loss, yes, 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 definitely. Things were just beginning to be stressful. There were things going on. I've been really, really lucky. This woman, Judy Rowan, was my therapist for probably 20 years, on again, off again. So a therapist for 20 years, what are you talking about? I actually think everyone should have a therapist, some neutral person that, that can help you organize your thoughts and prepare ideas and themes to get better. I think therapy is super helpful, especially for kids who might need somebody that isn't their mother or their father telling them what to do. During those years, I also had Judy and I went, I know the night that I found out I was suspended, I was driving home from an appointment with Judy when I got the call from Chris Rath that she was suspending me. The CrossFit and the tap dancing as well, although I wasn't running a lot, running with CrossFit was super helpful. One of my most profound CrossFit memories, and it was at the culmination of that first year, it was 2012, the culmination of my first year of CrossFit. There's a workout called Grace. <laughs> There are lots of workouts named after women and they, they're called benchmark workouts. It's, it's a workout that you do to see how much you improve on it from month to month or year to year or whatever. And grace is 30 clean and jerks for time. So it's not a squat clean. You just can power clean and jerk the bar over your head and uh, you do 30. So that's not a lot for a really elite, strong athlete. It takes a couple minutes and they're done. And the prescribed weight is 95 pounds. I couldn't even pick up 95 pounds, let alone put it over my head in the beginning months of my CrossFit. So it became the fall of 2012. And there's a workout that raises money for the Cancer Society called Barbells for Boobs. And it raises money specifically for breast cancer. So 
I wanted to do the workout and I wanted to participate in the fundraiser and I wanted to RX the workout. I wanted to do 30 clean and jerks at 95 pounds. So I approached John and Brad Newberry, who they were co-owners of White Mountain CrossFit at the time. And I said, what do I do so I can RX this workout? And it was just one of those competitive things that I had to do. I'm very competitive in nature. Always wanted to win the workout. Always wanted to have the best time or lift the most weights. And so they laughed, first of all, because I think at the time I could do 75 pounds. So that's a 20 pound improvement. And it was mid-September. So it's not like I had a year to improve. The workout was the last day of October, Halloween. They looked at me at the same time. One of them said, eat more meat. I think that was Brad. And John said, stop running. So distance running takes away your ability to really build muscle mass because running is an endurance. So it sort of keeps your muscles lean and smooth. You don't see a lot of bulky distance runners. They're lean. The muscles become long and sinewy. And if you want to power lift or lift heavy weights, you need a bit more bulk. I thought, okay, this makes sense. So I ran a road race at the end of September down at NHTI. And I ran my best time. I ran like 21.13, which is not a great time. But at the time for me, I mean, it's a great time, but not necessarily for me, but it was a pretty good one at the time, probably one of my best in a couple of years. I took it like, okay, I'm going to not run anymore. And so I stopped. I didn't run a step. And that whole month of October, I, I ate a strict paleo diet, you know, no sugar that I just read. I just followed it religiously. I think I had a couple of beers, pumpkin head ale, because it's so yummy in October. And I went to CrossFit every day. And I have to say, it's amazing how strong I felt. My weight training ability increased drastically. So I got to the point where I could do a clean and jerk at 95 pounds. So the workout is 30 of them. So I went in the afternoon with Robin and a woman named Regina. A couple of other people were there, but I don't remember now. And sure enough, we did the workout. That was our workout for the day. So I did the first one and I fumbled it and I scraped my shin and it was bleeding and I dropped the bar. And I remember John looking at me and kind of shaking his head. And I think he thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. And I, I remember feeling just embarrassed and sort of humiliated, like I'm just stupid. I took a big breath and I thought, no, I can do this. And I did one. So I did it. I did 30 clean and jerks for time. I think it took me 10 minutes, a long time, but I did it. And I had so many people cheering for me. I was last by a lot, but I did it. And I remember that was just such a culminating way for me to sort of wrap up my first year of CrossFit by conquering and mastering this goal. The competitive side of me is what drives me and keeps me going, always has. In my first marriage to a guy named Eric, he loved the outdoors like I did, but I always wanted to compete. So, you know, we got cross-country skis. I got a racing pair and signed up for some races. And he just looked at me like, why can't you just enjoy the cross-country skiing? Well, it just wasn't my nature. We got snowshoes and then I wanted to find a snowshoe race. And it was frustrating for him. But, but what drives me is the competitive side. If I have to analyze that, I think I've always been involved in sports on a competitive level. When I joined swimming, it was the swim team. And the reason I joined the swim team is I did this little recreation swim meet in Concord at Rolf Park in the summer of 1972 or three. And I won a bunch of races. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll be a swimmer. I mean, I did gymnastics. And of course, gymnastics is a, is a performing sport. I was terrible at it. I did dancing and, and all we did in dancing was a recital. And I didn't have the passion about that as I did about the things that you can compete in. Although the performing is a lot like competing. You know, I've never just been, oh, I exercise to lose weight. I was a skinny, skinny kid. So I've never really had to lose weight, you know, until now. <laughs> so when I look at the role of movement in my life from the time I was first abused to now, the competitive component has been a big piece of it. I will say the one time the competitive component disappeared was after Molly died. That trauma did something to me that no other trauma has. So they've all stilled me. They've all hobbled me, as Stephen King would say. I get hobbled, lie in bed sit perfectly still, just don't move. But I've always been able to maintain that competitive nature. 
I remember CrossFit after Molly's death was completely different because if I tried to push myself too hard and I started to feel out of breath, I started to cry. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate the feeling. Now, I also couldn't listen to music. In the car, I, I just left the seatbelt unfastened. So the beep, beep, beep kept me company because I couldn't stand music. Couldn't even stand talk radio because what if they talked about something that upset me? Life became a challenge around feeling nothing. And I think it's why I was so able to get addicted to alcohol and drugs at that time and just hide in the haze of being inebriated or high or whatever. That was the only time that I really lost my competitive edge. It took a long, long time to come back. It's back now, which makes me very happy, but you know, that's a five and a half year journey since Molly died, actually almost six. CrossFit was no different for me. I went and took a CrossFit class and got my CrossFit certification so that I can be a coach. I'm a level one coach. I never coached. I was never given the opportunity. A couple of times I thought I was going to get a chance to coach and people being who they are and such that didn't end up happening for me. And that was pretty heartbreaking. I have to say those experiences maybe around 2013 and 14 were very, very tricky for me. Also in that time, and this goes back to the body keeps the score. I developed trigeminal neuralgia, which is that nerve condition. And I remember from a tooth extraction in December of 2013 to a diagnosis in maybe November of 2014, I spent a year with a dentist, another dentist, a CrossFit coach, two CrossFit athletes, a friend, and people that hardly knew me, all assuming I was jonesing for prescription drugs. I had a CrossFit coach from White Mountain tell me he thought I was addicted to prescription pain medicine. <laughs> I had one Percocet prescription with 30 pills that lasted me like three months because I parceled it out because I hurt so much. I often took it when I knew I was going to have to talk a lot because it would take the pain away enough that I could talk. When I was finally diagnosed and given the anti-seizure meds that make the pain go away, it was like I couldn't even wrap my head around how much better I felt. Having said that, I still, have, still had decimating pain but it wasn't unmedicated pain, it, so it was better. And then the surgery, which I had in 2019, is even better. So like talking right now, those of you who are watching me, I'm pointing to my face. Right here, I feel like it feels prickly and itchy on the inside. I, want, I keep wanting to touch it with my tongue. I don't feel it on the outside, like this doesn't help it at all because it's an inside situation. I still feel it quite a bit. But aside from a little tick that I have sometimes when I'm really stressed out, for the most part, I feel fine. The body keeps the score. Mind-body connection, stepping out, back to the stepping out piece. If I had to say I had a strength in CrossFit, it's a workout style called a chipper workout. So CrossFit workouts are called WODs, W-O-D, workout of the day. What's the WOD today? There was a really funny meme or really funny parody on YouTube, is the WOD up yet? And it was just, this guy dressed as a housewife talking about CrossFit and is the WOD up yet? It was really funny. CrossFit wads come in a lot of styles. There are AMRAPs, A-M-R-A-P, as many rounds as possible or as many repetitions as possible. So you have a time, 12 minutes. And in that 12 minutes, you have to do as many as you can of two or three different exercises. Chipper workouts are longer. They tend to be between 20 and 30 minutes. Sometimes it's just a list of stuff to finish in a certain time. It usually takes about 20 or 30 minutes to finish the workouts. And oftentimes there's a set time and you have that long to get through the workout. And if you finish before the time, you start the workout over. It's one of those things. So those are workouts that I really thrive and excel at. And not surprising, I'm a distance runner. That's how I look at it. But when I really analyze why I do well in those workouts, and CrossFit athletes will understand this. So there's a workout called Murph. I'll just use that as an example. It's a hero workout, but you run a mile. And then you do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, and 300 air squats. And then you run a mile. My best time ever is 30 minutes. It can... Takes me about an hour now because I'm not who I used to be. 
And there are different ways to parcel up the movement. If you do it as prescribed, you wear a weighted vest. So what I like about a workout like that is there's nothing to think about. All you're doing is workouts, movements that are easy, that you don't need to focus on form necessarily because they're basic, basic, basic movements. So all you have to do is keep yourself going. Shut up, Barbara. Shut up and keep going. Step out so you don't feel the pain. It's very uncomfortable. Running a mile is not easy. And then you have all that work to do and you have to run another mile. I love those workouts. It doesn't surprise me because it takes away my discomfort in my body. It takes away the yuckiness I feel when I think about myself physically, you know, in my body, not what I look like or who I am as a human being. If you're scratching your head as to what I mean by that, lucky you because <laughs> abuse survivors will know exactly what I'm talking about. And so those workouts remain helpful to me. The first day I went back to CrossFit after Molly's death, it was like 90 degrees. And I actually met John Farwell there. He came down and I was the only one there. It was really super hot. I think it was actually before the gym opened and he knew how hard I was struggling and that I didn't want to be around people and how uncomfortable I was. And I don't remember the name of the workout now. It's a tough one and it involves running an 800, doing a lot, doing, it's a really, really hard workout. And that was the workout. And I actually think the day before that, I went down like on a Sunday and everyone had done Murph. And so I did Murph all by myself. So whether or not he knew what he was doing, John eased me back into the gym after Molly's death by giving me workouts that he knew I liked. These long, don't have to think about it, chipper workouts. One of my favorite experiences with this type of workout, it was before my current gym, CrossFit Ironborn, became Amoskeg Fitness Company. Every Wednesday, we had these crazy long workouts to do. Sometimes it was run a 5K. It was these long ones. So we had a workout where you had to walk around the building carrying kettlebells, do a farmer's carry. So a kettlebell in each hand. So that might not seem hard, but it, when you have 35 pounds in each hand, and you have to walk a 400, they get heavy fairly quickly. You have to put them down and rest. So you, you walk one. When you're done, you put them down, you go in, you get on the bike, and you ride 100 calories. That was the workout. And then the next week, you had to do two laps. And the next week, three laps. So here I am, a woman in my mid-50s, and I had like the best time in the gym. I was beating everybody. And it's just because all you have to do in a workout like that is hurt. There is nothing to think about except dealing with the physical pain. Well, as I've said before, that's my jam because the physical pain distracts me. I step out of it, so I'm not really feeling it. And all I do is focus on finishing and not stopping. That fills my head and I can have some calmness there. I have tried in my get better after losing Molly life to pray and meditate during those times to get into a reflective mode, but it takes me out of my stepping out, puts me back in. <laughs> it's not super helpful. I can meditate on the rower because I can row at an easy pace and get into a rhythm. I can also pray when I swim. Same thing. It's a rhythmical movement that you do over and over and I can, you know, count the strokes and breathe every third and, and get into praying that way. And I do, I've done that before. The year after I lose my job and the beginnings of three years without teaching and my marriage sort of falling apart and trying to hold my family together and keep a connection to someone that to this day, the thought of not, you know, having a connection to Roy terrifies me. It just is what it is. You know, I share it because I'm not alone in this. I know there are so many of you out there that feel the same way as I do about somebody. And, you know, what do you do? How do you make sure you're not hurting everyone around you any more than you already have? I and mean, how do you not hurt yourself anymore? These are questions that go with me all the time. So I have an envelope here somewhere. I always try to write down things that I want to talk about to get it right. I will end or wrap up a little bit by some other ways that I have found comfort for myself in the physical realm, doing things for my body. So one of them is hiking, walking in the woods and hiking. This is something I really got out of in my years raising Gracie and Molly. We weren't hikers, which is amazing to me. I grew up skiing and swimming and skating and sledding, all these outdoor activities 
right around my house. And I also climbed, my mother took me up my first 4,000 footer when I was seven years old, Mount Madison. It was a bit of a traumatic experience, but still I've hiked not all of them. I have a handful left to have all 48 4,000 footers in New Hampshire. Hiking is unbelievably therapeutic, something I love very much. And I haven't, I just haven't done it. You know, I don't even have hiking boots anymore. In my early days of dating Kenny, I took him up Mount Lafayette. So he's hiked one 4,000 footer. And, you know, I, oh, Kenny, don't worry, it's easy. Because I'd run up it several times. Of course, not realizing I was running up it. And he's like hiking boots that are made for running, kind of. And he had sneakers on. So we get up there. We have this great picture of us on top of Mount Lafayette. And we're eating our lunch. And he realizes that he has to go down. Oh, no. So those are things that in my life were incredibly important to me. And I think when I was a runner, it was easier to put those things together. I had an athlete, Kristen Wentworth. We're still really good friends. Kristen lives out in the country with her beautiful, beautiful doggies. She's been a huge support for me in terms of Molly and Molly's death as well. And we did a hut traverse. We started at the Mount Washington. We hiked up Tuckerman and up on top of Mount Washington. That's Lakes of the Clouds. And then we hiked over to Mispa Hut and then down to Zealand Hut. And we stayed overnight and we got up and we hiked to Galehead Hut. And then up over a bunch of mountains to Greenleaf and then down and we finished. And that was like a two-day experience and we stayed overnight. It was one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life, just hiking and going over mountain after mountain. We had a beautiful sunny day. The first day was pouring rain. It was a bit terrifying, actually. <laughs> you don't know if you're going to step off a mountain because you can't see more than two feet in front of you crawl along from Karen to Karen. And then her parents met us and they brought us dry clothes. We had them all in our car. It was so, oh my God, it was so good. And then the next day was sunny, but freezing. I have a whole book about it. So Kristen, if you're listening, I still remember that one. We wrote in all the books. Hiking was a huge piece. And I think back to my childhood and all the trauma that my mother had to process in her life and all the hikes that we went on and how those were her escapes. And maybe in some ways, that's why I didn't hike with my kids because maybe there's some scary negative connection to it on the inside that I don't think about. It's hard for me sometimes to be in the mountains. I haven't hiked, but that was a huge piece of it for me back in the day. Another thing that I've done is downhill skiing. I learned to ski primarily at Pat's Peak as a little kid, but every Wednesday, my mother would go skiing with Tom, my biological father. And oftentimes, two or three times a winter, I'd get to go as well. So I have skied at Cannon since I was a little, little girl. And I can go skiing at any ski area and I have a great time and I love it. But a day at Cannon just fills my heart because I have such a connection on a spiritual and emotional level. And that comes from primarily skiing it with my mother and with Tom. Everything with Tom was an adventure and a connection. And so we'd ride the chairlift and you'd tell me what I should think about and how I should think and, and how to ski and how to traverse. And it was never technical. It was always like, think of the horn concertos as you ski down, because you'll find the rhythm of the traverse on this trail matches the fourth horn concerto. And so I'd hum it and ski to it. And to this day, I hum it in my head when I ski. And every trail had a story and every trail had a meaning and, and a skill. And so when I'm in Upper Canada, I'm going down and I'm going down Vista Way. There's Mount Lafayette and it's all, all of its beauty. It still makes me cry. It's the most beautiful thing. And so many things come up for me as I ski down the hill. <laughs> Downhill skiing has been a very, very huge piece of my recovery in terms of a little girl recovering from the abuse. And in my job loss where we had no money, you know, I went skiing several times with Roy and took him to Cannon and had that experience there. Unbelievable experience. It can't help it. It's just this amazing, amazing thing. And it was incredibly helpful for me in going through all that I was going through with my job loss. Be able to share with somebody what had been shared with me, this beautiful, beautiful time skiing. And, you know, we skied other places too, Waterville and Bretton Woods, but nothing makes me feel good 
as good skiing as Canon does. And so that's a huge piece of my life and what has made me better. And obviously the first thing I'm looking at my list here and it says March, 1979, track and field and running. That's a whole episode in and of itself because it, so much of Mr. Ludi is in there and so much of my high school self, my high school identity is in there that I wouldn't lump it in with this one. So I'm going to wrap it up. I always hope I'm not too rambly. I think sometimes I am. And then I go back and listen and I sound a lot better than I think I sound. The bookends of grief, job loss to Molly loss and, and how much I scrambled in the middle and how much did my determination to keep my fake life happy contribute to Molly dying? You know, I think about it all the time. I just think about everything I could have done differently had I just cut off with Roy and gotten a job at a different school and just started my life over. Would, would I have found her tumors? Would life, would the path have been different? My distraction sometimes and my desire to keep everything okay, I think sometimes just blinded me to what was right in front of me. And, and that's where I own this. And any mother that's lost a child who's listened to this will know exactly why I feel this way. And anyone that suffered child abuse and then become the caretaker of their siblings and their family and their parents in their adult lives understands too. It's a very, very tricky balance being an adult who had such a tricky path to adulthood. So I'll end here. The sun is setting a bit as it does early, early in the day in the winter in New England. I hope that you all got something out of this. Next podcast, I will. I'll talk about running and, and starting running and breaking five in the mile and how amazing all those experiences were and what that did for me as a high school student, you know, going through high school. So I hope you're well. I don't know where you live, but I hope wherever you live, you're enjoying the weather and doing good things, being good to yourself, doing something physical. If something's bothering you, go for a walk, go to a bridge over a river and throw rocks in it. I did a boys fitness class at Concord Dance Academy. I had all boys. It was a fitness class. Like six boys signed up, EJ and Jagger and Joe and the other Joe and a whole slew. Oh, you can see his little face. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, I had this whole group of boys and we would run from Concord Dance Academy through the tech, over the highway bridge to the path. On the way, we'd collect rocks and sticks, all sorts of stuff, and we'd throw them into the river. <laughs> and then watch them float down. The side that we were on, we could watch them float away. It was great. Rocks didn't float, but the sticks did. It was fun. I digress. Sometimes there aren't enough rocks. I'll end on that. So I hope you're well. I hope you're marching through January. In day six of COVID, I'm a little mental, I have to be honest. <laughs> but as always, have a great day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.